0: Welcome everybody, Andrew Halachek here, Um, and I have to tell you I am particularly excited to spend the next hour or so with a dear, dear friend of mine, um, Dr. Roger Walsh, who I'm sure you will agree with me is an absolutely unique and beautiful human being. Um, I've had the great good fortune of studying Roger's work, at this point actually for decades, uh, reading his many books. and really became uh, even more enamored with him when we met um, a little over a year and a half ago at an integral conference and presented together and found him to be even more extraordinary in person than he is in the kind of written capacity. And so what I'd like to do is introduce Roger formally by reading a little bit of his bio, and then we definitely do not have any shortage of provocative material to talk about. Um, so this is what Roger has to say, uh, at least in terms of his biography. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. So Roger Walsh, MD, PhD, graduated from Queensland University with degrees in psychology, physiology, and neuroscience, and medicine before coming to the United States as a Fulbright Scholar. He is currently a professor of psychiatry, philosophy, anthropology, and religious studies at the University of California. His research interests include psychological well-being, wisdom, and love, practices such as meditation that foster them, and how we can best respond to the social and global challenges of our time. He is a student, teacher, and researcher of several contemplative practices. Roger's research and writings have received over 20 national and international awards, While his teaching has received eight awards, he is a University of California distinguished writer, as well as its outstanding physician. His books include Essential Spirituality, Seven Central Practices, Paths Beyond Ego, as well as The World of Shamanism, and the modestly titled book, The World's Great Wisdom. Um, And really, Roger, this is my favorite part of your bio. I did not know this about you, and I think it's just awesome. He was formerly a world record holder in high diving and a circus acrobat, and recently graduated from the San Francisco Comedy College and had an extremely brief and unsuccessful career as a stand up comedian. Uh, OMG, Roger, that's just funny as hell.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it wasn't at the time, but still.
0: Yeah, I think it's already successful because it's made me laugh. Um, I did not know that about you. I mean, that just that just even rounds off the the picture even more beautifully. So, um, wow, well, my dear friend, we have we have so much to talk about. I, what what I want to do is uh, just situate a little bit where your brilliance will fit into what we're trying to do with our our venture um, in that uh, kind of nightclub. And this has to do with uh, what our members are familiar with. In, in the back of the nightclub, so to speak, we have these six ongoing tracks, a curricula that I have playfully referred to as night school, and they are somewhat all centered around lucid dreaming, but, um, and we'll definitely talk more about this, uh, lucid dreaming is really used as a platform for um, discussing discussing the lucidity principle altogether. That's really the heart of it, where lucidity is just really a code word for awareness so everything that we're doing with our nightclub night school um, under the guise of lucid dreaming is increasing awareness to be um, more awake uh, not only in our dreams of course but in our daily life Um, and so welcome my dear friend Um, I'm just totally delighted to have you with us and and uh, I want to start actually by talking a little bit about what you included in this rich bio, um, which is how can we best use the psychological practices and things like meditation um, as a way to respond to the social and global challenges of our time? Because one of the very common critiques, in fact, one of our our active members um, leveled a very, I think, very cogent critique about, as I'm sure you very well know, how these meditation practices can so easily slip into a host of um psychospiritual pathologies, you know things like spiritual bypassing, um cosmological dualism, um spiritual materialism, and the like and, and so um I want to discuss with you if it's okay as our launching topic um exactly this uh, near enemy, you know the the idea of near enemies is is very much in the spirit of the alchemical tradition and also the tantra tradition where Wherever you find light, you will find shadows. Um, every noble quality has an ignoble shadow side. And in these teachings on um, lucidity, lucid dreaming, uh, the practices of illusory reform, which all, as you know, kind of circumambulate the core teachings on emptiness, it's super easy to become um, dismissive in our relationship to the phenomenal world and, and use these things as covert mechanisms for escapism. Um, and so I would love to start to talk about that and both your personal experience with this on your own extensive meditative path and how you've worked with this uh, professionally uh, in your clinical practice and also as a meditation instructor. So let's launch with that.
1: Well, that's a, oh, there's a lot there. <laughs> so that should keep us busy for a while. Yeah. Uh, well, let's uh, first off, let's acknowledge that <clears throat> the unique aspect of our time that this is the first time in human history we've had access to the world's contemplative traditions and the vast array of practices they have available. And we're really just beginning to understand them. And yet we have this priceless opportunity of not only looking across the variety of the world's contemplative practices, uh, distilling, recognizing common core elements uh, unique flavors, uh, different capacities, etc., cetera, that they have recognized, but also to combine this with scientific research. And that opens a whole new door and variety of possibilities. And I was just looking at the meditation research uh, uh, surveys uh, earlier today, and there are over 6,000 studies that have been done on meditation alone now. So this is just an extraordinary burgeoning field and we're just beginning to appreciate some of the values and benefits of these practices for example you know we have a host of benefits that have been recorded uh, well for say lucid dreaming to begin with but all sorts of contemplative practices but there have been first person reports now we have now we're identifying a variety of benefits that Weren't even talked about much in the in the previous literature. Physiological effects, neurophysiological effects, effects on learning, IQ, uh, a variety of c- cognitive, uh, emotional capacities, and who would have thought? For example, that meditation is a relatively solitary practice, the largest effect of all would turn out to be increase, an improvement in relationship qualities. Oh, yeah. so- so so it's early days and we're just beginning to appreciate the benefits and even less we're just beginning to appreciate some of the difficulties because as I'm sure you you know well uh if you look back at the classic text, we basically got pretty uh Pretty bolderized, uh additions about these things. The usual story is, you know, so and so learned the teachings, disappeared into the monastery, and, be- and became enlightened. Well, sort of like boy meets girl, you know, they uh, ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. If you've, if you've ever been in an intimate relationship, you know something's missing. <laughs> so. <Right. laughs> And it's sure similarly, similar with uh, these practices. And I think that's what you're pointing to. The, there are a lot of traps and problems that uh, anyone can fall into. And, and we will fall into them. The problem with these practices, some of them are incredible, superb. They cultivate all sorts of capacities and virtues and potentials. And they're practiced by human beings. It's a real problem. Yep. Absolutely. And and I
0: just wanted to uh, immediately um, riff a little bit on what you just said about uh, these, you know, 6,000 plus studies. And I think, isn't it right, Roger, something like over 500 a year now are being churned out, which is extraordinary. And how it is, it's it's so compelling to me how it is that that meditation, um, which, you know, these are side effects because in the wisdom traditions, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Meditation came about primarily as a as a, a, a sociological enterprise, as a way to achieve liberation. And so, the truly amazing thing to me is that there are so many collateral benefits to meditation that aren't even part of the initial kind of charter or trajectory. And the fact that you um, kind of paying right at the beginning its ability to improve relationship to me, I find that archetypal because. In many ways, I look at meditation altogether as a way to um, improve relationship to the contents of mind and reality altogether. And so the fact to me that it would have this very specific um, kind of benefit in terms of human relationship is, is I think, um, completely confluent with this larger kind of benefit that, that meditation in fact, this is one of the ways I define it, Rogers, in in so many ways, meditation doesn't really change a thing out there, so to speak. But what it does is it changes the way we relate to whatever is out there or or even in there. Um, and so I find it really compelling that relationship is the one thing that kind of stands out and that we can kind of extrapolate it back into this kind of more foundational benefit of just improving relationship altogether.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought of that, uh, but yes, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful example of uh, what I hadn't appreciated as a as a larger uh, process. And of course, yes. Uh, now that you say it, it's totally obvious. <laughs> so thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so let, let's dive a little bit more into some of these shadow elements, because one of the truly remarkable gifts you bring. Is your expertise in in so many different areas um, both you know experientially and doctrinally and your ability to bring um, a kind of therapeutic lens to the meditative path altogether and that's a topic I want to follow up in just a second but but let's talk let's unpack a little bit more some of these I think primary shadow elements in the teachings on um, lucid dreaming and, and it's daytime practice illusory form which is you know roger is is one of the things that differentiates lucid dreaming from dream yoga um, lucid dreaming per se doesn't have the practice of illusory form but in the dream yoga traditions illusory form is, is foundational in fact so much so that in many of the practice texts dream yoga is actually considered a subset of the practice of illusory form and immediately when you talk about things like illusory form or empty form Oh, my gosh, you got the booby traps of nihilism, spiritual bypassing and, and the like. So let's let's unpack that a little bit and how easy it is for unwitting practitioners to hit the um, eject and escape button when they engage in these practices. And basically, um, in their efforts to wake up, they um, often find themselves getting out in, in the pejorative negative sense. So uh, help us a little bit with those.
1: Okay, and one of the things the first things that comes up for me is as you were riffing there about the varieties of problems that people can get into is the recognition that we don't as yet have a good map or a cartography of the shadow side of contemplative practices or the pathologies that can emerge or the the problems that people can run into you know it's amazing to realize that this is this is a relatively re- a pretty recent field yes it's true that there've always been warnings in the texts about traps but we haven't really recognized that that there can be more than traps or side side alleys that people can actually in some cases experience uh significant distress pathologies of various kinds can emerge and we don't have a good map of these yet so I think as as we discuss this, we'll be um, working with our own particular predilections for what to look at, and so I guess my first question for you, Andrew, would be: okay. Is there are there particular kinds of issues or problems or even pathologies that you'd be particularly interested in ex- yeah. exploring?
0: Yes, yeah. yes, there is. I, it, I'm going to answer that, Roger, by reading. A short quotation from you may know him, the sociologist and teacher David Loy. I, I I really like his thinking. Uh, he wrote, oh yes, he's wonderful. He, he's a wonderful individual. I, I had the a good fortune of meeting him not that terribly long ago, and he talks he, he riffs a little bit on the idea of cosmological dualism, um, and this is what he says when when I read it. Um, this is his commentary on this idea of cosmological dualism. You know the idea. Uh, either overt and covert, as you know, in so many of the wisdom traditions, um, that if there is a transcendent reality, a nirvana, a heaven, a pure land, it's almost inevitable for people to think that they are going to leave this um, grimy, gritty, everyday relative reality as a way to escape into some version of heaven. In fact, A.H. um brilliantly said, you know, when people set out on the spiritual path, most of the time they are are unwittingly setting out for heaven. And, um, you know, I've come to understand that if we can't find heaven on earth, our awakening is incomplete. And so this is what David has to say that, that I think will be a wonderful platform. So this is what he says. He says, the danger with the view of cosmological dualism is that if nothing is real, therefore nothing is important. Seeing everything as illusory discourages social or ecological engagement, why bother? The important point here is that clinging to emptiness can function in the same way as cosmological dualism, both of them devaluing this world (laughs) and its problems. To see this world as illusion is to dwell in an emptiness that is disengaged from its forms, in which the end of suffering involves non-attachments to the fate of beings, paren, another near enemy, and paren, rather than non-attachment to one's own ego, end quote. And so I thought he just pinged this thing right on the head. Um, and so, yeah, let, let's talk a little bit more about that, because I, I have certainly fallen prey to this subtle spiritual pathology myself, thinking that um, I'm just going to find my way out of this mess. and. And, you know, fundamentally making the discovery that until I can use my wisdom and and kind of pull this wicked U-turn, right, Uh, this wicked ass U-turn where I'm rocketing up and out and realizing that if I don't bring my wisdom back into form through the process of waking down um, into the forms that I differentiated from in my process of waking up, my spiritual path is incomplete. Um, I'm only partway there. So um, what say you?
1: Yeah, so uh, essentially you're pointing to the idea of the uh, illusory nature of the world and the traps that go with that. And there's, uh, with this issue, as with so many problems that one can run into in contemplative practices, there's a grain of truth there. Across tra- traditions, there's a widespread recognition that reality is not what we think it is that it's much more multi-layered. There are ways of seeing into the nature of ourselves and of reality that, through contemplative practice, go much deeper and call into question our conventional assumptions. And along with that comes a particular remedy. One of the recognitions across traditions is that the, our, our conventional nature, our ego bound nature, our identity as separate self senses is in a fundamental way Ill- illusory or mistaken. And we suffer from essentially a chronic form of mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. And that the ego bound identity, the idea of ourselves as skin encapsulated egos or centered. In the body or limited to physical form, etc., comes with uh, many costs. One of them is, as David Lloyd pointed out, a fundamental sense of lack or flaw. Mm-hmm. I call it the triple F fallacy, the, the fundamental flaw fallacy, the assumption that we are in, are in some way defective, deficient, and flawed. And as a result of that, there's, again, almost universal agreement across contemplative traditions that one of the compensatory responses to that is a compulsive seeking for acquisitions, for yeah. things, for ways of filling that gap. And that we are, by nature, addictive creatures or addicted Creatures, and that addiction is not, as our culture understands it, just something which has a couple of specific forms, usually thought of as drugs and food and sex, but that this is a much larger dynamic in all of us, all of us who are not significantly awakened. And one of the remedies for this, and this brings us back to your original point is a recognition that we are not seeing things clearly, that our usual perception and understanding of both ourselves and the world is in some sense illusory. And so one of the core teachings is a deep ontological teaching about the fundamental nature of ourselves and the world as when you skillfully encouraging us to look at the world in a different and more healthy and more realistic way, which in an, which has the benefit of reducing our addictions and our hankering after the toys and trinkets of the world. So that's the healthy strategy uh, behind the idea of the illusory nature of the world. But of course, there are a couple of problems there. One is that that's not the final perception or understanding. There are deeper perceptions or understandings, and uh, that those involve a variety of uh, non-dual perceptions. The other side of this is the trap of the, uh, the devaluing of the world and the dismissal of its suffering, uh, which can serve a defensive function in many ways from helping us avoid the recognition of the fundamental nature of suffering as a part of human existence, removing the obligation or, or call to service, and uh, negating the call to compassion and care. So, yes, indeed, th- you're pointing to something very important. These, these are real problems. Wow,
0: what a rich set of offerings here, Roger. I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, the idea of seeing things more realistically is one of the ways that we define what it means to be lucid. I mean, non-lucidity is really just getting lost not saying properly being too um too involved with form and and, i mean when you're talking about this kind of devaluation of form it's a classic you know our, our mutual friend ken wilber talks about it i believe in his adaptation of hegel's famous statement the idea of transcend but include and What you're basically paraphrasing here is that we're we're particularly adept at transcending, but not so good at including. Um, And so there. Well,
1: many of most of us are not so good at transcending either.
0: (laughs) Well, exactly. Yeah. So so yeah. Either way, right? Either way, we kind of uh, get lost a little bit. But man, I want to return back to what you're talking about. This idea of this kind of deficiency, this fundamental flaw, fallacy, and really the kind of misunderstanding. Um, of emptiness as a as a deficient emptiness, and I could not agree more with you that we have this ineffable sense, this inarticulate sense that something is missing, and and so uh, over covert ways we're we're hungry, and and so we eat, um, but we don't really know what we're eating, and and I really um, kind of argue that we eat the menu instead of the meal, and hence. We have all these forms of obesity, which uh, physical obesity is just one expression, where we have intellectual obesity, we have spiritual obesity, we have ideological obesity, where we're trying to fill this fundamental deficiency, um, which is incredibly painful because I think this is, and you can speak with more authority about this than me, that this is one of the unfortunate legacies of of the um, Judeo-Christian notion of, of original sin as foundational deficiency that is Completely, uh, um, kind of opposite to the wisdom montheistic traditions' assertion that fundamentally we're we're already divine, that we are Christ and Buddha within, and and so it makes it doubly painful that fundamentally, if we were looking in the proper way and um, releasing our insatiable appetite for form, we would in, fi- in fact find the real truth that we're looking for instead of all the substitutes. And and the last thing here, Roger, what I thought was brilliant. Was that you know this uh, notion that we're addicts by nature? And um, I'm not sure you're aware, but in the in the Tibetan Buddhist cosmological schema, they talk about three fundamental realms of samsaric existence. And um, the realm that we exist in as humans is what's called the realm of desire, which I believe is a gentle euphemism for the realm of addiction. It, it, fundamentally, it's the addiction to form. And and so therefore, I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that in many ways. We are each, um, I mean, at really subtle levels, um, junkies to thought. We're all thought junkies because that's a subtle um, inner type of form that that we feast on all the time. And and the narratives that are born from that give rise to non-lucidity in the deepest sense. Um, and then the natural consequence of that kind of lust for non-lucidity kind of gorging on non-lucidity, of course, for our listeners who are um deeply interested in the practice of lucid dreaming. This, of course, is one reason why we have so many lucid, non-lucid dreams at night, because we're feasting on and actually lusting after non-lucidity during the day. Um, So I could not agree more with what you're saying. And so uh, if you have more comments on that, I'd love to hear it. But otherwise, what other pathologies have you witnessed in your own psychospiritual development, Roger, and also with your vast experience as a as a health health healthcare professional and a meditation instructor. I mean, what other traps do people get lost in that you see with some consistency?
1: Well, let's see, you asked about two kinds of traps, my own personal ones, a a long story, and uh, more general uh, problems that people run into and particularly the ones that we see clinically. Starting from myself, I think I've been particular particularly prey to one class of traps that comes with any kind of practice, and that is uh, using it in a way which amplifies one's problematic personality aspects. For for me, uh, I have had a been very achievement-oriented, driven. Um, so when I dove into, jumped into spiritual practice, it was going to be enlightenment or bust. Right. And uh, you know, I, I was seeking a Nobel Prize in enlightenment, and uh, <laughs> and uh, it was enlightenment or bust, and I busted. Uh, I really worked very hard at. The practices, and that they that had significant advantages, and I eventually worked to the point of overdoing it and burning out extremely badly, and taking several years uh, for recovery. Wow. Um, and that was fair. So that was a a you misusing the practices in a way which. Uh, aligned with and reinforced and strengthened a particularly problematic aspect of my personality and that dovetailed with the culture of the practice I was working with I was Primarily meditating in those days in the Theravadan Vipassana tradition. And there, there's a very ascetic element that runs through it. And I still remember reading the line As long as the yogi has skin on his bones, he practices arduously day and night. Well, I that was the ideal I took on. And it's great in theory, but there's also the idea of balance and and zeal, enthusiasm, energy, effort, are very fine virtues. And if there's one thing that I've come to learn, both from the hard knocks of personal experience and from looking at uh, the wisdom traditions, and from looking at Western philosophy, it's the idea that there needs to be a balance between virtues, and that when any virtue is taken to excess without a an equivalent or at least a proportionate cultivation of other virtues, we run out of we we fall out of balance and into problems. So that's an example, a personal example for me of a, a problematic uh, approach that got got me into trouble. Uh, I could go now into some more general clinical. Yeah. Aspects, but would you like is there anything you'd like to comment on there? Yeah,
0: yeah yeah a couple of things there Roger one is is what what did you do um, to reconstitute or heal this excess I mean what what in the, in the year or two that you took to recover so to speak what was the major? Component in that recovery for you.
1: Well, that's easy. <laughs> I had the very good fortune of being married to an extremely good psychotherapist. Oh, exactly. yeah. <laughs> My wife Frances Vaughan was truly, while she died about a year ago, was truly a master therapist, and it was she, you know, she, her help and nourishment and love were major aspects. Um, The advice of a mutual good friend, Ken Wilber, was very helpful who really kind of gave a little uh, philosophical framing for more skillful ways of approaching practice. Uh, The benefits of having done a significant amount of psychotherapy and learned practices such as relaxation and stress management were also beneficial. Doing practices in a far more gentle way, which was actually the only way I could do them, I was so badly burned Mm -hmm. out, uh, Mm -hmm. was helpful. Literally for a year or so, I could not strive or struggle. I would just get this burning sensation in my chest and physical pain. And uh, so, in some ways, the the problem was self-correcting. You know, if you there's a saying, if you you know if you climb uh, the wrong ladder, (laughs) eventually you know eventually you realize you're, you're you're climbing the wrong wall and a uh, you know, fool who persists in his folly becomes wise. That was a, that's an old saying. I don't think it's always true by any means, but but it, but follies can be self-correcting if you have good support. And I had good support.
0: Yeah, and this and this really ties into what I've heard you say several times, uh, Roger. That I think is absolutely worth inserting here that in in your capacity as a as a meditation instructor, you find some. I think you you put forth something like 80% of what you're working with, with your MI meditation students is really um, in the realm of psychotherapy. And I I want to insert that because um, it's like, one of my favorite lines um, from Trungpa Rinpoche is is where he says, you know, uh, meditation isn't a sedative, it's a laxative. And I I think that's really quite beautiful that when uh, the illusion of having our life together is uh, revealed in meditation all these unwanted aspects all the things that we've stuffed in the unconscious mind will of necessity as part of the healing part of the psychospiritual path find their way to the surface so they can be re-experienced metabolized digested and eventually processed and so i want to insert that because a lot of people are always wondering like what is the relationship between um, psychology and spirituality and I think um, the fact that you claim that 80% of what you work with with lots of your meditation students is actually within that realm, I find that, I find that very compelling because it also can allow people, in the spirit of what you're talking about to realize that meditation and the spiritual paths as powerful as they may be, um, may not be the appropriate skillful means for certain issues and so um, it's virtue as you are talking about, but if you have a larger bandwidth of skillful means at your disposal in your toolkit, psychotherapies, um, obviously the things that you have tremendous clinical and theoretical experience with, then you can bring a full, and this is of course why we're both fans of integral theory, you can bring a full spectrum approach to um, all the traps that will invariably come up when we involve, I I believe, in deep spiritual practice. Um, And also one last comment here, just for our listeners, Willoughby Britton um, is a, um, a scientist researcher. I think she's a little brown. Is that right, Roger?
1: She's, that sounds right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. She's she has a, a a project she's been working on for a number of years now called the Dark Night Project, where she chronicles and um, has interviewed a bunch of professional uh, meditators, instructors, and and also students who have really had um, you know sometimes quite serious side effects of either inappropriate practice or things being dislodged that the practitioners didn't have the appropriate relationship to. Um, And so unless you have a comment on that, and and of course I'd love to hear it, um, I would like to return to more like generic traps where, where you have found others that you've been working with tending to get sidelined because these are places where I have discovered both personally and with the students that I work with, you can spend and waste years, if not decades, stuck in these traps um, because you're either unaware that you're trapped in them or you don't have the proper resources for actually working with them. So I think this is a really important fruitful practice for psycho-spiritual practitioners.
1: Sure. Okay. And let's just go back again to the idea that we don't have a fully formed map of the traps and pathologies that can come with spiritual practice. So maybe one way of uh, organizing our thinking here would be to run along a spectrum of severity. Mm -hmm. And clearly the severity of problems and disorders that people can run into with contemplative practice span all the way from psychotic breaks through to existential anxiety and transpersonal traps, very subtle uh, side side traps or uh, seductions. So maybe just to briefly touch on the severe cases first, uh, Clearly, contemplative practices can unveil pre-existing pathologies because in part they are deconstructive techniques. That is, they dismantle some of the defenses that all of us have uh, just by virtue of being human and having an ego. And in doing so, they can overwhelm. And in a very small percentage of people, they can even precipitate acute psychotic reactions. Usually those are people who've had pre-existing breaks, are not taking medications, and are doing intensive practice. But we should acknowledge this can happen. And the remedies are pretty simple. Stop meditating. Stop doing intensive practice. Go back on your meds. Um, be around people, uh, get grounded, uh, go for walks in nature, uh, eat some heavy food, talk to people. Those kind of very common sense ideas. So that's one extreme. Then there are a variety of what what we could call uh, very painful experiences intense emotional eruptions, for example, intense anxiety, uh, repressed uh, memories, uh, not necessarily abuse or sexual, but just memories that have been uh, avoided. And uh, these can come flooding flooding up. And uh, with that can come a variety of emotional reactions, feelings of unworthiness, uh, incapacity, when you do contemplative practices, you, one of the things that happens, you run into the recognition that the mind has its own mind has its own air, uh, dynamic and we're not really running the show nearly as much as we thought we were. That can be very disillusioning, anxiety-provoking. Uh, it can call into question our, our identity. Uh, so there can be identity disorders of various kinds or pains or problems. Uh, so those are kind of the uh, uh, you know more intense experiences that arise. So one thing that I think would be really valuable to talk about uh, before we proceed further with other problems and pathologies is to put them in a particular context, and that is the question of what is the difference between a quote problem and a potentially therapeutic process. And as far as I can see, the difference <laughs> difference is really one of the attitude towards which towards it which one takes. If a an experience, an emotion, a problem, quotes of some kind, is resisted, is pathologized, is misinterpreted, then it becomes problematic. If, on the other hand, something like an intense emotion, an upwelling of anger or fear or rage or jealousy uh, comes up and it is held in an attitude of acceptance, care, compassion, investigation, then it becomes the means for potential release and transformation and growth. So... So much depends, and this gets back to what you were pointing to earlier, Andrew, depends on the attitude and perspective with which one approaches the experiences that arise in practice. That, I cannot tell you
0: um, how excited I am to hear that because I think that is so key, this um, altering this foundational, again, the narrative of a relationship. Um, if we uh, change our usual kind of no relationship are sometimes even adversarial relationship to experience you know uh, and i know especially in the Shaiva tantra tradition whenever we are unable to stay with uh, intense experience the fires of experience we in that language uh, we create a, a, a samskara that's then lodged in the unconscious mind lodged in the subtle body and there it festers um Creating this kind of um, psychic abscess that eventually has been uh, percolating underneath and and really still subversively dictating so much of our so-called conscious experience. And so I think what you said here, Roger, cannot be overstated. And that is that so much of the spiritual path, and I would I would I would say also psychological development, is the maturation from um, a closed minded kind of no-centered. Uh, adverse relationship to being able to say yes, this kind of radical acceptance, radical welcoming, that I think is absolutely integral to the healing um, process altogether. I mean, is that a, a fair way to summarize what you've been talking about?
1: Yes, indeed, and there are two general psychological principles which are really crucial here and can just save a lot of pain and pathology if, <laughs> if we take them on board. One is t- uh, to know that within the mind what you resist persists. That is, it yeah. tends to, what you're unwilling to experience sticks around until you are willing to experience it. And the second is what you're unwilling to experience runs your life. And that's a pretty powerful combination of those two facts. Uh, and so it's hard to overestimate the importance of acceptance. In fact, the great psychologist Carl Jung said that acceptance is the acid test of personality. Um, I think he was pointing to a very important recognition that that when we can accept uh, whatever experiences arise. And and we have to be careful in our meaning here because people uh, understandably jump to the idea, well, you know, you think I should accept injustice and poverty, etc. And no, we're talking more about an inner attitude towards one's own experience. And the reality is whatever experience has arisen, it's there, it's happened, and it can't be changed. But we can choose how we relate to the next moment and if we relate to the next moment and the next and the next with one of openness curiosity investigation acceptance then we're invoking the qualities which foster psychological growth well-being and spiritual maturation and just having a lot less suffering in the process
0: yeah that's i mean really i'm going to riff on this for for just a little bit just to put some exclamation marks on it It, and it, it, I think you're familiar with this jingle as well. You know what you resist persists. Um, out of sight is not out of mind. Out of sight is is basically into the unconscious mind. And, and what I'm what I'm talking um, thinking about here is uh, what Krishnamurti um, I think very beautifully said when he was asked to um, at the end of his you know 70 years or something as a teacher he was questioned about the secret to his contentment and to his happiness and. He said something so disarmingly simple that it haunts me to this day where he fundamentally said, you know, I don't mind what happens. But I, I also thought um, that that from a Buddhist perspective, that's kind of a, a Hinayana answer, not, not to, in any way to dismiss it, but to contextualize it. Because in the context of what you were saying, Roger, I think we can add to what Krishnamurti was saying um, from a more Mahayana approach. And, and really, it's like, I don't mind what happens to me. But I really mind what happens to you. I really mind what happens to the world because otherwise the near enemy of this kind of radical acceptance as you were suggesting is is apathy, uh, kind of a, a unhealthy acquiescence to the state of the affairs. and I, I Ken Wilber shared with me this remarkable story um, when I was chatting with him where where he was sharing the comments from a so-called a Buddhist uh, master teacher who was asked something about the state of the world and global warming and the like, and and Ken shared, "Well, um, yeah, doesn't really. I'm not that terribly concerned because I'm going to a pure land when I die. Um, and that, to me, is Maybe. far from the. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's far from from this kind of integrated, authentic process of of, of waking up, as I've come to know it. Um, and so if." If we can kind of dovetail this for just a second, I'm curious how this can, if possible, be related to the unconscious mind and its expression in the dream state. Um, is there a way, in fact, that we can work with our dreams? Um, because obviously most of this residue and rejected experience is lodged in the unconscious mind, which of course is, is a large part of what dictates um, our dreams. And, of course, as lucid dreamers, we have this unique capacity in this kind of hybrid state of consciousness where the the conscious mind can face the unconscious mind directly. Roger, do you have any uh, personal experience with working um, with dreams in this kind of therapeutic capacity? And uh, is there a way in your experience that lucidity in the dream state can somehow be harnessed to facilitate and even accelerate the resolution of some of these um, discords, these residues?
1: Well, I th- certainly think it can, but I need to acknowledge that most of what I know about lucid dreaming and working with them I got from reading your book. <laughs> well, thanks for that. <laughs> so, so, so I could quote a few things from them. Not sure that's what you want, but I, if you, if I'm sure you're know, in terms of discussing lucidity, I'm sure if you raise a couple of points, then uh, we can dialogue around them. Is there something specific you were thinking of there? You
0: know, actually, more just how, you know, again, it, there are several things that are kind of running as narratives for me here. One is the ability of using the, the this kind of refined, you could even say distilled state of consciousness, the lucid dreaming state where the, the, the conscious mind can face the unconscious mind directly, and then... You know. Secondly, um, even in non-lucid dreams, how we might be able to work with some of these resisted aspects uh, uh, within the context of the dream arena, and and yeah, this may be more under the kind of purview of, of dream therapy, and and I'm not sure if that's part of what you have been working with in, in your career, but I guess the larger issue question is your invitation is how can we use our dream experience lucid or otherwise to somehow work with with some of these issues
1: yeah yeah and clearly uh, there's such an enormous array of possibilities for dreams and and it's important to recognize that the the two broad classes of working with dreams uh, lucid and non-lucid have really originated from very different sources the uh, the practices for working with lucid lucid dreams and the whole the deeper realms of dream yoga really come out of the contemplative traditions mm-hmm. the work with non-lucid dreams has primarily come out of the contemporary western psychotherapeutic traditions and there the it's only very recently, as you know well, that Western psychology has begun to appreciate the reality, let alone the potentials of, of lucidity in, in dream work. So much of the work with non lucidity in the psychotherapeutic tradition consists of, uh, well, quite a variety of practices, but of looking at the main approaches have been have been going to the content and looking for the symbolic meaning of content uh, for practices such as uh, visualization, allowing the dream to continue to unfold in the waking state and uh, uh, learning from that process or visualizing oneself back in the dream and working with problematic emotions and, and difficulties. But these are second, and these are, can be very, very valuable. I certainly don't want to underestimate them, but they are a step removed. Yeah. And the, clearly, as some of the stories in your book point out, there can be dramatic, really dramatic transformations that can occur when people can work directly and immediately with their experiences in lucid dreams.
0: Yes, and and I remember very clearly when I heard you talk, in fact I believe it was at the, the integral event where we met, um I was really um struck by your discussion of what um I believe you, you call the trim tab phenomena. You know, you have this beautiful analogy of how and, and maybe when I pause here you can tell our listeners what trim tabs are. But when you talk about or allude to these types of dramatic transformations that really Are available to us in the dream state. My contention here is that when we're working with the deepest levels of of the dreaming mind, and even more foundationally, entering the arenas of of uh, uh, the mind is revealed in in deep dreamless sleep, i.e., via sleep yoga and the like, that we're working with the very roots of our entire experience. You know, mixing metaphors, you know, the tectonic plates of our experience, and that what This is one of the things that excites me, Roger, about these nocturnal practices is that um, in certain ways, when we're working with darkness, we're working with origins. And when we're working with these foundational bandwidths of of mind in the dream state um, and even below, because we're working with something so foundational that, you know, um, what we do down there can have rapid and sometimes quite dramatic effects on what happens up here. So talk to us a little bit about trend tabs and how this discussion could could fit in quite nicely with that, that metaphor.
1: Sure. Well, first to just say a little bit about the metaphor. It comes from the general principle of, of looking for the most strategic impact one can have and the most strategic place at which to have it. And it comes from a mechanical uh, phenomenon. If, if you look at the plane, uh, look at the rudder on a large jet, you'll find that the rudder has a little rudder at the back. And the reason for that is that when planes are moving at hundreds of miles an hour, there's enormous wind pressure on the on the rudder or on the tail of the plane, and it's almost virtually impossible to move the rudder by mechanical means alone. That is, the mechanical forces involved are just too large. However, if you place a little rudder at the back of the rudder, (laughs) then if the little rudder moves one way, (laughs) the big rudder moves another way, and the whole plane moves in the direction of the trim tab. So this is a metaphor for the amplification that applying force at the strategic location can have. And what it's application, what you're pointing to, is that lucidity and even more the the dream yogas allow one to work with deeper material or deeper substrates of material or the roots of the symptoms and issues that rise to awareness both in lucid in dreams both lucid and non-lucid and in the waking state and yes there's a general principle that if you can if you can work at lower levels of the psyche if you can if you can work for example with the core assumptions core presuppositions core beliefs rather than the more superficial ones that will be not only more transformative but more widely transformative. If you can work with the psychodynamic roots and causes of a symptom rather than just alleviating the symptom itself, that's more transformative and and impactful and enduring. So the idea that one can, with lucid dreaming and with dream yogas, Get deeper into the contents and the dynamics of the mind, and consciously work with those as they arise in the moment. Just has enormous implications, and hopefully this will just become a, a large research field for therapeutic applications, as many as well as many other interesting possibilities. Yeah, it's one of the um, quote-unquote marketing tools that I I
0: try to um, sell, so to speak, to people who are interested in this phenomena of lucid dreaming, because very often the most common question is, well, why should I do this? Why bother? And uh, one of the things I say is exactly this, that if you're working with these foundational tenets, you can have vast surface repercussions. And, you know, in the inner yoga traditions, Roger, there's a very common kind of adage where, they talk about penetrating the vital points, which is working very specifically with with uh, energetic centers, i.e. chakras, you know, quite similar. I think the analogy here would be acupuncture points, you know, going to exactly where the issue might be and being very, um, like you were alluding to, very strategic with where you apply your efforts. And and there's obviously another uh, analogy to throw yet more into the mix that comes from chaos and complexity theory, of course, which is the butterfly effect. Right. That um, these tiny kind of found, what do they call it initial uh, sensitivity on original um, uh, conditions or something like that
1: sensitivity of initial conditions.
0: Yes, exactly. That that if we we have the wherewithal to maintain lucidity in these subtle states, you know, in, in the wisdom traditions, um, as I've come to understand them, the gross um, realms of phenomenal experience are, in fact, epigenetic, epiphenomenal expressions of these more foundational strata. And if we can work and target these sweet spots more directly, which I believe is precisely the benefit of these nocturnal practices, that we can therefore affect profound diurnal changes. And and what I talk about um, very commonly around this topic is this bidirectional theme that Obviously, we know very well this bidirectional thing. What we do during the day affects what we do at night. You know, we have stressful days. We have stressful dreams. But what is a little bit less known, and that's precisely what I'm talking about here, is the bidirectionality of the what we do at night. We can bring and um, use to harness transformation and and uh, during the waking life. And, and to me, that replaces the usual vicious circle of non lucidity that we're victims of whether we know it or not, with a um, virtuous circle of lucidity that the practices we do during the day, kind of what we started our conversation with, are then kind of downloaded and ping and pop up into awareness into the dream state, in fact, bringing about or inviting lucidity. And then in this more um, or lesser known, I should say, track or highway that what we do during the night can therefore also come back in King and transform what we do during the day. And I'm not sure if you've had dreams like this, Roger, but if you have, I'd love to hear them either lucid or otherwise, but my life has been blessed, um, serendipitously and also more with these overt practices of dream yoga and the like with dreams that have quite literally changed the course of my entire life. And, And I believe it's because they work with such foundational dimensions.
1: Yeah, and I've loved reading the descriptions of some of your dreams in your in your books. <laughs> uh, they've been very inspiring. I, I have to confess, I am lucidity challenged both day and night. <laughs> 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 I have uh, real difficulty. I really would love to have the uh, uh, greater dream lucidity, but I don't have much. I have a little in retreats, and I've had more since I've been studying your book. Uh, But I am am lucidity, definitely lucidity challenged. So so, uh, I found the few that I've had beneficial. I've certainly had dreams that non- lucid dreams that have been very valuable, and have gained a lot from uh, working with them psychologically. Uh, there is, you know, there's a question I'd love to ask you, Andrew. You sure. brought up the not just lucid dreaming, but dream yoga and the deeper possibilities here. And really, I had not appreciated. Just how profound some of the possibilities yeah. for dream yoga were until I studied your book. And one there's one other advantage or uh, p- potential uh, application of lucid dreaming that we haven't discussed, but which yeah. I personally have found very valuable, and that is in introducing the idea of enlightenment or waking up to uh, mainstream audiences, and that is the use of lucid dreaming as a metaphor. Yeah. The idea that we can we can be immersed in a world and have a body and feel pain and be fighting and suffering and ecstatic and having sex, etc. And it's all a mind creation. Exactly. We know that we can create universes and bodies because we do it every night. Now, the implic and the, you know, the fact that we can do this and not recognize we're doing it, to me, has an enormously powerful teaching tool for our attitudes towards our waking life oh, and reality. I, I could not.
0: Yeah, Roger, I could not agree more with you. And, and, and it's really is I continue to explore these um, nocturnal practices. I gain even deeper appreciation of exactly what you're talking about. That, um, to paraphrase it, that what lucid dreaming, dream yoga allows one to do several things. One is by studying what the wisdom traditions refer to as the the double delusion or the example dream. That's being the what we know as the nighttime dream. By understanding the the phenomenology, the processes, the mechanisms of the nocturnal dream. We can extrapolate, and again, it's in this bi-directional um, theme, we can extrapolate, bring the discoveries we make in the arena of the nocturnal mind back into the um, diurnal state of consciousness, and start to ask very similar questions. Uh, you know, how different is it in fact, to be in this so-called waking state? what What can I bring from the insights of my nighttime mind into my daytime experience? And for me, Roger, this has been, The the biggest gap of these nocturnal practices is um, waking up to the night. uh, You know, lucid dreaming really fundamentally leads to lucid living, and in so many ways, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah. What? And I talked very briefly with Ken about this. That you know, in the dream state, we do create um, entire universes. We we engage in what the literature refers to as lucid solipsism. You know, we we are. Um, the creators of this reality. That when you, when you, especially when you have a hyper lucid dream or even a hyper lucid non uh, hyper lucid non lucid dream, just in terms of clarity, you know, I wake up from those things and and my waking state becomes the foggy dream. Um, and so mm-hmm. it it becomes a foundational challenge of my my the status of my waking reality and, and what I write about in my book that is. Profoundly part of my continuing ongoing experience is that if, if we define these terms um, carefully by reifying my nighttime dream, I can in fact de-reify my waking dream. Um, I can wake up to the fact that I am in fact lost in sleep during the waking state. And as you know, this is the very definition of the Buddha, the, the awakened one. And I think waking up partly is is just that, is 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 fundamentally realizing that, in my opinion, Roger, and I'd love to hear what you you have to say about this, I think dream, you know, there's, I talk frequently about kind of this encrypted language, you know, I mentioned earlier that lucidity is a code word for awareness. I I also see dream as a code word for manifestation of mind. And by Mm. seeing the, the role of the magnificent creations that we bring about in the nighttime arena, we don't, solipsistically create our daytime reality, but we co-create it, we co-enact it with beings who have similar um, habitual patterns, i.e. karma, similar biological matrices, and therefore we can see um, in a very profound way how it is during the day that we deeply, deeply color our reality, and and we usually do so uh, in our image. I talk about King Midas effect, you know, whatever we touch with our senses is transformed into our version of gold. You know, it's like, I think it's the Talmud, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that says something in effect of, we don't see things the way they are, we see things the way we are. And so this is a kind of a concentrated riff on on a really, this really beautiful point that we can start to penetrate these these veils of ignorance, these veils of non-lucidity, as they manifest in this concentrated, distilled way in the dream arena. Take those insights, apply them, extrapolate them back into the daytime state, and say fundamentally, is this any difference? And the wisdom traditions, and again, you're you're more savvy in in, in this than I am. Um, they say foundationally there is no difference. You know, Milarepa saying, you know, not um, not seeing day and dream as differing. This is as meditation as it can be. So, um, I'll come up for air in a second here, but I'm. I'm Kind of going off on this because this to me could be the heart of our conversation is that we can use the vast natural resources of the nocturnal mind to gain profound insights into the working of our so-called um, daily reality um and so does this resonate with what your understanding from other wisdom traditions um put forth as well roger
1: uh let's see i would say in part but you are schooled in and deeply practiced in uh, Vajrayana Buddhism. And I think of all the traditions that I've studied and a lot of my both personal interest and professional work, as being cross-cultural survey of contemplative traditions. Mm-hmm. I think the Vajrayana has the most sophisticated understanding of uh, lucid lucid uh, of dream yoga. Uh, other traditions certainly have these practices, but I think. Probably Tibetan Buddhism has the most sophisticated appreciation and philosophy surrounding it so so I think some of these ideas can be found latent in other traditions but I don't think as fully well uh, and uh, articulated as in Tibetan Buddhism um, there's an, another implication of the of the lucidity and dream yoga work. I'd, I'd love to extend on what you just said. And then I'd like to come to the question I have for you. Sure. The extension is, well, let me say it personally. When I was in retreats last year, I did a two-month retreat, and I had your took your book in and tried to work with what, what little lucidity I could mash. <laughs> but... I also read the book, you know, studying it for, for the background and context. And it's very rarely that one has uh, – there are very few occasions in one's life when one's worldview is dramatically expanded. But through reading your book, mine was. And oh the way God. it was expanded was it made me realize that I had absolutized the waking state, the foundation from which I evaluated all other states. And reading your book and getting there a distillation of Tibetan uh, philosophical understanding of uh, domains of reality levels, et cetera, et cetera, it made me realize that no state was foundational, they were all empty, and suddenly I was—I had my foundation cut out from under me in a very <laughs> healthy way and found myself afloat in the recognition that all states were effectively Bardo's or transitional realms, none was necessarily foundational, none was solid, and that my previous worldview was expanded and relativized. And that was a profound gift, uh, wow. which I'm still assimilating, of course. Well, but that go ahead. The, that's the other that's a further implication of what you're saying.
0: I, it touch, first of all, it touches me so deeply that that it would have that kind of impact on you. And, and similarly, it has absolutely affected me in the in the very same way. and And I know you you speak about this, you know, within the context of monophasic versus polyphasic cultures. Um, and I, I could not agree more with you that until I started to explore these more subtle domains through dream yoga and then also bardo yoga, which, which is very, very resonant complement with this approach, that it, it really absolutely ch- challenges and eventually pulls out the rug from this kind of absolutistic, wake-centric state. It, it's a type of discrimination that I'm writing about, Roger, that... We don't even know we're afflicted by. I mean, these these are the real blind spots when you don't even know that you don't know. And when you just take it as a default, that you know the only way to know mind in reality is is through the wake centric lens. And I had exactly the same impact with me. that that's a that's a wake centric approach that I talk about. It, it's also, completely in line with um, our emphasis on sight, sight sight-centricity, which interestingly enough is our most superficial sense, the most dualistic and rapid of all senses, Um, our our infatuation with with light, uh, artificial light, in other words, photocentricity, and how all this circumambulates the mother of them all, of course, which is egocentricity. And, And what I've discovered is that Ego is, you know, pretty much only fully online and operational in the waking state. And when we fall asleep, ego quite literally falls apart. And so what I've discovered is that it then, in a kind of scientistic way, arrogantly dismisses, um, colonizes, dominates other states of consciousness. It can't fully experience. And, and that's just a, such a sad Western way of looking at it. And you know, our mut- uh, you know Charles Lofam much better than I do, but in his beautiful work. You know, he talks about that outside of uh, Western European cultures, there are some 4,000 cultures worldwide, and I believe the number he puts it is 80% of those are are fully um, polyphasic. In other words, they pay allegiance to what we would call altered states of consciousness. And so, again, you're you're just pinging on some such incredibly important points that I, I have to just say a little bit more about how transformational that has been for me as well, and that now when I go to sleep... I realize that I have the opportunity to touch into domains of, of reality that are equally as valid as what I experienced during the wake-centric state.
1: Yeah, beautiful. And and here's, so here's my question for you. Yeah. Uh, We've discussed, and and I think, at least in the dream research area, people are beginning to appreciate, and the cultures may be beginning to appreciate a little bit, the extraordinary implications of lucid dreaming for our understanding of ourselves and of life. What would you say the larger implications of the deeper levels of dream yoga are? Oh,
0: my goodness. Wow. There's a question. Well, I mean, you can guide me if, if I'm heading in the direction where I think your question is taking, taking us. I, I believe that fundamentally, and this, interestingly enough, is the question I was going to return and ask you, is fundamentally, what does it mean to wake up? Um, and I believe that the deeper implications of these practices is that we can learn, you know, w- by waking up to our dreams, we can learn how to wake up altogether. Um, and this means waking up to any manifestation of mind as dream, um, and therefore, in the way you're talking about it, creating this kind of, what uh, this one taste quality that that uh, I know Ken even wrote a book out by that title, which is a classic Mahamudra teaching, the the kind of equanimous nature of mind through all states. And so, if I'm addressing your um, question or not, you know, please. Let me know or clarify it, but to me, it's it's using the nocturnal mind um, in this refined distilled way to facilitate, and if we're careful, even accelerate the waking up trajectory. And um, as you may or may not know, the, His Holiness First Karmapa, the founder of the Karma Kagyu tradition, allegedly attained his full awakening, his full enlightenment via dream yoga. Um, And so it has that potentiality. So is that what you're asking, Roger? No, that's
1: that's part of it. And and there's another uh, part of the question I'd like to point you to and ask if you have reflections on that. What you gave were a a collection of practical applications for how one can use this. How about the understanding of reality from the deeper levels of dream yoga? What does that have? Tell us about reality.
0: Yeah, well, it, 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 and again, everything. Um, it, <laughs> it, it, it's really, you know, again, in, in the deepest sense. I have to toss this in when we go down, you know, to the very deepest levels of dream yoga, the transition, of course, into sleep yoga, what the Tibetans call luminosity yoga. Then we come upon the genius of Ramana Maharshi, where, of course, in a very famous line that um, our friend Ken refers to a lot, you know, that that which does not exist in deep dreamless sleep is not real and so we can by um maintaining lucidity awareness in the deep um, the dream state and then as you may know in the Nyingma tradition that's considered partial lucidity you know in the Nyingma tradition um full lucidity is sleep yoga maintaining awareness full full awareness light fully turned on in the deep dreamless state um and so my doctrinal understanding, Roger, and also I've had some glimmers of experience in, in deep, dream yoga, sleep yoga retreats, is that um, I believe you can you can actually uh, drop into the very bed. It's a wonderful double play on the word bed. The very bed of mind, when we drop into these, you know, incredibly subtle, formless states. And then, in fact, bring the light of that lucidity, bring the light of that awareness of that of that reality, which I talk about in my book, of course, is the clear light mind. That's the, the mind that illuminates and, in fact, even is reality. Um, and then you just bring that light back with you when you um, enter the dream state. All your dreams are lucid. Take it back with you one more step. When you wake up and, into waking reality, the light stays on. That, um, results in a world of uh, illusory form. And so to me, there's a, a tremendous elegance in this kind of um, upward ascent from dropping into what I believe is, is is the bedrock of reality. But then what you point out to, and this is what I what I think is so important, is that what we then don't want to do is, and I, I fell into this mistake for some time, is that we somehow want to privilege the deep dreamless state is somehow even more superior, and that's the shadow side of Ramana Maharshi's statement um, that that which mm-hmm. is not existent, deep dreamless state is not real. The fundamental um, point, as I've come to see it, is the unity of all these states, the ultimate equivalence. Um, in Buddhist language, you know they, this is what's called Svabhavakakaya. You know, it's one state of consciousness is not privileged over the other; all then become avenues of access into reality. And to me, I guess, Roger, that's the point, that, that these dream and sleep yoga practices have led me to that doctrinal and then experiential discovery where I, I, I have to stabilize it, of course. There's a big difference between the a, a, a peak and a plateau, but um, that is certainly what has continued to inspire me and continues to make me so terribly excited about the potentialities of the nocturnal mind that it can lead to that discovery and then fundamentally realizing that even right now, as we're speaking, as we're having this dialogue, the utter immediacy and completeness of everything we could possibly be looking for is already unconditionally, unequivocally present right here and right now. And to me, maybe that's the fundamental point, that we can gain provisional access to it um, via any practice. Um, I found the nocturnal methods to be particularly applicable for my spiritual path, obviously they're not for everybody. But then, you know, being very sensitive to the trap of taking, um, you know, false refuge, and and even these deep states, thinking that they're only a, if you take that, that, that's your enlightenment is still partial. You've just transferred, you just simply transferred your reality and your your definition of a reality to a more subtle domain. And to me, it's it's the equivalence of all these states, and realizing that from an awakened one, it, it's all it's all one taste. That's all the same. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, something like that is that is that kind of what you're asking?
1: Yeah, that, that's beautiful, and I'm I'm thinking of how the general principles you've elucidated that one discovers in dream and even more so in sleep yoga. Uh, related to or closely aligned to or with the larger general principles of profound spiritual practice in general. Yeah. And I was thinking that you, you elucidated several principles there. One is something you mentioned earlier in our discussion, which is radical acceptance. So the the sleep yoga has led you to a recognition of a radical acceptance of all states and all possibilities as sleeping, waking, and the th- the, another general principle is it's is it's uh, helped you move towards a more of what is technically called non-foundationalism. That Beautiful. is the the trap of. <clears throat> Of seeing seeing one thing or one experience, one state as foundational, and uh, beyond that, the recognition that all these states, all experiences, are in the technical terms of Tibetan Buddhism, empty. They are uh, not. They, I, I like to use the term they're transconceptual. They cannot be captured adequately in the network of concepts or words. Um, so those are some of the principles I take out of what you're saying and see them uh, as beautiful examples of, the, of some of these general principles, which are sometimes elusi- enunciated for very deep practice in yeah. in as well. That's that's beautifully
0: summarized. And, and I actually have not heard that elegant term non-foundationalism, but that's been the, the kind of relatively recent discovery for mm-hmm. me, Roger, because – I mean I used like in my in my tradition, we talk about i mean there are literally texts called pointing out the Dharmakaya, you know Dharmakaya being, being the really many for many people virtually equivalent with the awakened state, and so for the longest time, I thought, oh, the Dharmakaya is it, that's the point that's that's really where I want to go and then um similar way, you know like I was saying earlier, sleep yoga, oh, that's an expression of the Dharmakaya, that's where I want to go but what you said has been one of the insights uh, uh, over the last couple of years for me is this non-foundational tenet that um, that all these states fundamentally it, it can be seen in this equivalent way. And and again, the reason I think this is so practical and so important is that what it therefore does is it empowers the immediacy of awakening. That whether we know it or not, and this is what I love so much about um, the the uh, so-called non-dual traditions, you know, Dzogchen and the Shaiva Tantra traditions, is the empowerment of the immediacy of the awakening that that we have right now, immediately in front of us at this very instant, the totality. That's why Dzogchen is called the great completeness. It's already completely full and perfect right now. We don't have to go elsewhere. We don't have to go to the dream state. We don't have to go into deep dreamless state. We don't even have to go into these meditations um, fundamentally. We just use these other methodologies as a way to come to this realization that fundamentally, as T.S. Eliot said, the journey never even needed to be taken. It's again, it's a beautiful way to dovetail to what we started our conversation with that foundationally, the transformation is one of a relationship that um, samsara and nirvana are equivalent and that samsara and nirvana are, are both born out of either appropriate or inappropriate relationship to phenomenal experience. And this tenet of non-foundationalism, wow, that's just fantastic because that's a, precisely what it, it has come for me. And, and I have to toss this out, Roger, you know, the another great line from Trump Rameche where he says, you know, the, the the bad news is you're falling through space without a parachute. The good news is there is no ground. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we the, the kicker is we this isn't it's a subversive egoic agenda. We want that ground. Even if that ground is groundlessness, even if that ground is emptiness, we we um unwittingly impute um a subversive kind of reification even to, to these foundational de reifying trajectories. And that's why one of the most important teachings is self-liberate even the antidote, discover the emptiness of emptiness itself, to, to, to discover that even Illusion is itself illusory. And that's, I mean, talk about non-foundational. Then what do you rest your hat on? Well, you rest it on the only thing you can, which is the present moment, um, knowing all the while that even that doesn't exist. It appears, it manifests, of course, but fundamentally it doesn't have the, the, the ontological status that we um, unwittingly imbue it with. And so for me, I, this is fantastic because that that's a take-home message for me. It's right here. It's right now. Um, I don't have to access it in, in other states. If I just open my eyes to it, it's everything is completely in front of me right now.
1: Yeah, beautifully said. And that just undermines the, the whole central dynamic of ego, which is uh, constantly looking for something else, the assumption that, the, the another another complication of the fundamental sense of deficiency, uh, defectiveness, and lack in the ego is that that is imputed to each moment, and so there's always the assumption that that it whatever it is must be in another moment, another place, another state, another experience, etc. And you just pointed to the way in which these uh, deep uh, lucidity and practices uh, undermine that and bring us, and I, I actually, I loved it, you actually talked me into this in, as, you, as you were talking, you actually talked me into giving me a glimpse, a moment of rest from the perpetual seeking for a different something. And falling through space, yes. What would it be like if one could simply open to that and let it be okay to be falling through space without, without a foundation on which to, from which to construct an understanding and, uh, and a, a pusto or place to stand. So, thank you. <laughs> you gave me yeah. pointing out instruction. <laughs>
0: Isn't it true that, that that fundamentally there only is Bardo, there only is this this space, this gap, and. As you know, the 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 wisdom traditions in, in various um, iterations say, you know, on very deep levels, striving is the only obstacle. Um, enlightenment is a false destination. Um, the only thing we fundamentally have to do is open, you know, increase the aperture so that we can let more light in and um, realize that the wake-centric view is in fact a a, a egoic form of a centricity and iteration of that, and that, you know, uh, I, when I think about the stuff and, and the supportive of uh, literature, it, it, it just makes me relax. And I think that's the most, I find that actually, Roger, to be the irreducible instruction on the spiritual path, is just open and relax. Um, but of course, as they say, it's so obvious we don't see it, so simple we don't believe it, so easy we don't trust it. And so um, for people that say, well, but then we have this thing called the spiritual path. Um, but fundamentally <laughs> but fundamentally it's so incredibly simple. What's complicated is is the conceptual mind. The, 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 the fundamental trajectory could not be easier, could not be more obvious. That's what ironically makes it so hard because're we're, we're, we're always searching for something and that in fact, is the paradox that searching actually obstructs what we're looking for. What, what you're looking for is actually the looker. And uh, this, to me, is one of the most shattering gifts of these wisdom traditions and these nocturnal practices.
1: And so, yeah, and, there's, and, and there's, you're, you're making me realize a couple of things. We're getting a couple of gifts out of this. One is that as you're talking, you're inducing the experiences and recognitions in me. And, you know, I've spent a lot of years reading spiritual texts, so a lot of these ideas aren't new. But there's something invaluable about exploring and naming them in relationships. So I'm getting it in another way and a deeper way, as you say it, that I haven't from books. So... This is the song of the gift of spiritual community and being co explorers in some of this work. So you're naming it is just it, it is just a gift. So so thank you. Well, it's a, uh, oh, well, thank you for sharing that. And and it's similar to me. You know, it's
0: like this. We we or this type of dance just evokes this kind of opening and and um, and really stepping aside. So so that you know then this this truth just actually comes to speak um, from that space and then. Resonates, and so I mean, I, I absolutely feel the same thing from my end. And, uh, yeah, and,
1: and I had I had one very nice experience of what you're pointing to the the idea the the idea of the simplicity of the teachings and nothing to nothing to strive for, nothing to get. When I was having an interview with my my Zen teacher, he said, "Well, the way we set things up here is we we get people to sit, and those who those who know they're Buddhists can just be Buddhists, and those who don't can work at <laughs> trying to get there. <laughs> but they're both doing the same thing.
0: <laughs> that's, that's absolutely brilliant. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, Roger, this has been a total, total delight. I always love talking to you. Your the depth of your your wisdom, the warmth of your heart. Um, every time I talk to you, I have to say, dear friend, it remains a continual source of inspiration. I, I, I truly feel like I'm drinking from the well when I'm in contact with your work and, and what you have devoted yourself um, to sharing with others. And it's a monumental contribution. Um, um, I would like to offer to you this moment for you to share with our listeners like what you're currently working on, how people can Uh, reach you and become more familiar with your work, because I think when they um, start to explore even further the depth of what you have to offer, they're going to want to know more about you. So as we start to wind this up, share with us a little bit about what you're currently working on and what your um, aspirations are.
1: Well, thank you for that invitation. Well, there are a couple of major themes at the moment. One, I've long been interested in uh, the human potentials, capacities, what psychological health and well-being are, and in the last few years, that's taken a focus, uh, particularly on interest in the in the capacity for wisdom. So I've been exploring that for. Quite a, quite a few years now, I edited a book, uh, as <laughs> as you mentioned, modestly titled The World's Great Wisdom, but I could get away with that title because I was <laughs> editing it rather than writing it. And basically there, I invited people from each of the great traditions and philosophies to summarize what their tradition says about what wisdom is and how it's cultivated. So that was an edited book, and then for the last uh, four years now, I've been working on uh, my own attempt at a synthesis, looking at what – trying to get an understanding of uh, humanity's understanding of wisdom and how to cultivate it and trying to pull out the general principles across cultures and, and traditions and eras and, and distill this into some uh, – Succinct but relatively comprehensive overview and practical application. So, so the theme of wisdom is a big issue at the moment. The other topic that has just called me back after several years out of it is, is one that uh, uh, more and more of those of us in this kind of community are concerned with, and that's the, the great question of our time: the survival of our civilization. As you you and I'm sure anyone listening to us knows, we face uh, an enormous number of unprecedented threats and opportunities, largely due to the acceleration of technology and the consequent increased impact that we are able to have on our societies, our environment, and the planet as a whole, and the potential destructive capacities of those, the extraordinary gifts and potentials So, it seems like we're at a bottleneck in human history in which we could literally destroy our civilization or we could move to a new era of unprecedented welfare, well-being, wealth, uh, capacities, potentials. We have so many, so much new understanding. We have so many psychological and spiritual insights. We have the world's spiritual traditions available to us for the first time. We have new technologies, new understandings of learning, so many possibilities and so many dangers, yeah. uh, ranging from, uh, you know, we all know them ranging from ecological, to pollution, to to weapons of mass destruction. And of course global warming is the one which gets all the all the press. Uh, but I'm I'm trying to look as I think a lot of us are is what can what are the most strategic entry points we can make here to have an impact. And for myself, what I I'm drawn to, what I if we look very closely at the threats we're facing, what's unique about them is that for the first time in human history, every one of them is human-caused, which means that at some level, each and every one of the major global threats we're facing is an expression of our individual and collective psychological immaturities and, and pathologies. And what that implies is several things. One is that what we've called our global problems are, our glo- are actually global symptoms, as symptoms of our individual and collective psychological spiritual dysfunctions. Another very important implication is that if we're really going to uh, resolve these issues and ensure our survival as a species and a civilization, we're going to have to address not only the external problems like reducing nuclear stockpiles and reducing CO2 emissions, we're going to have to handle the the roots of these problems, the psychological, the cultural, the institutional roots. And we're going to have to take a multifaceted approach, which brings us to our friend Ken Wilber's uh, yeah. integral approach. Uh, and I'm struck by the, there's a story in uh, in the uh, book by Aldous Huxley, Ireland, where the stranger lands on this utopian island. Uh, Ask, well, how did you do this? Where did you start? And they respond, we started everywhere at once. (laughs) And it feels like that's what we have to do. Each of us is being called at this time to contribute in whatever ways we can. Each of us has to look for our own particular contributions, and there are an enormous number of entry points. And each of us, hopefully, will find our particularly unique contribution, making use of our unique capacities and connections and skills, et cetera. And hopefully, together, we can shift things and ensure our welfare and well-being and collective survival, and beyond that, eventually, our awakening. Yeah, beautiful. Gosh, but again, you yeah, have this amazing capacity
0: to distill so many uh, deep, complex issues into such beautiful words. And and um, it's what I've so appreciated about your work is the integrated component. And also, you know, you talk about wisdom in, in the book that you wrote, um, wisdom traditions. Well, you know, wisdom applied is compassion. Um, wisdom not applied is, is, you know, sterile, potentially just sterile escapism. And so it's a wonderful way to, to come full circle to what we started with: that that we have this ability with these wisdom traditions to e- express this compassion in untold new ways. And and ex- I couldn't agree more, Roger. That you know, when I take the fifty thousand foot view here, um, we're obviously in what the the Brahmanical Hindu traditions refer to as Kali Yuga, you know, the dark age. But but co-emergent with that is, in the, like, as in the, in the Taoist tradition, is is uh, light. Co-emergent with that is the mindfulness revolution and the all the wonderful discoveries in the neurosciences that that are supporting the processes of transformation um, And that for me, I have to say very personally, yes I'm, I'm acutely aware of it and sometimes It's easy to capitulate and get down on it, but I I, I, I will never give up because the foundation of mind and reality is is fundamentally good and pure And all these problems are fundamentally adventitious defilements, and and if they can be seen as such, it doesn't in any way dismiss them, but it contextualizes them. It it helps us realize that they are, in fact, um, adventitious. They're not inherent to the world's condition. They're they're fabrications um, from retarded developmental stances, from egoic trajectories, from arrested forms of development. And, and this is why, again, our mutual friend Ken Wilber's work is so beautiful because we can then see this larger framework of not just only waking up but growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. And, and your your life has been just a marvelous embodiment of those tenets. And so you you walk the talk, and it's, it's deeply inspirational for me to continue to hear about what you're doing and, and to just get excited about the application of your life's work. Um, and so how can people – Find you, contact you, Um, what's your website address and how can they learn more about what you're up to and and presentations and the like?
1: Sure. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Probably the best way is uh, my website, drrogerwalsh.com, and that has uh, a lot of talks and articles and uh, information up there. So if people want to take a look there, please do. And thank you very much. And, and Andrew, thank you so much for the opportunity of uh, having this discussion and exploring together and uh, between us, getting these kind of ideas out into the culture, because they these ideas can be so transformative and so impactful. And I'm, I'm just delighted you, you've created the nightclub podcast as a way of getting, getting them out more widely.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, this, Thank you so much for sharing that, Roger. My time with you has been as, as rich and fruitful as as I um, thought it would be. And and again, I'm deeply appreciative of not only taking the time to talk to us um, during this particular podcast, but also a deep bow from me um, for your life's work and, and continued blessings and what you are uh, doing, because the world needs what you have to offer, and it, it will be better because of it. So. Thank you, dear friend, for spending the time. We can't wait for us to get together in person again and um, may our paths cross many times. Appreciate it so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay, Roger. Bye-bye now. Bye.